Hi friends, Justin Hibbert here. Can I ask a huge favor? If you're blessed by this podcast, if you've learned something from it, if this has been helpful to you, would you do me a huge favor and buy me a cup of coffee? Okay, don't really buy me a cup of coffee, but pretend like every month you're taking me out for a cup of coffee. How do you do this? You become a patron. It's just $5 a month to become a patron. It's the cost of a cup of coffee. It's all I'm asking. If you could be so generous in doing that, it will go a long way in supporting me, this podcast, and some big plans I have for Why Catholic. All you need to do is go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Thank you for your help. God bless you. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. While normally these episodes are about 17 minutes long on various topics of Catholicism, every month or so I like to do an interview with someone who is living out their Catholic faith in a unique way. Back in episode 62, I talked about how not all Catholics are Roman Catholic. I mentioned that there are 24 sui juris churches that make up the whole of the Catholic Church. The Latin, or Roman Rite, is just one of those. Today, I have the privilege of sharing an interview with a Melkite Catholic priest named Father Colin Nunes. In this episode, you'll learn a little about Father Colin's spiritual journey, what led him into the Melkite Catholic Church, some distinctives about Melkite Catholics, as well as how the Melkite Catholic Church is working to bridge the gap between the East and the West. Father Colin lives in Melbourne, Australia with his wife and three-year-old son. He serves at St. Joseph's Melkite Catholic Parish in Fairfield, which is in the Melkite Catholic Eparchy of Australia, New Zealand, and all Oceania. Here's my interview with Father Colin Nunes. Well, thank you, Father Colin, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. All the way from Australia. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. It's evening here. So, no, what what time is it? Sorry. <laughs> still, well, I live in Utah, so it's uh, it's six o'clock here, but I think it's ten o'clock your time, right? Uh, ten a.m. my time. That's that's uh, right. Yeah. All right, a day ahead. So, let me know how Wednesday's going. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, and, and hopefully you can prepare for your Wednesday as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I'd love to start just by getting to, lo- to know a little bit about your upbringing. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, who you are and and sure. uh, where you grew up and and especially like your Catholic upbringing. Sure. Um, so I um, so first of all, um, I'm Colin. I'm I'm, uh, I'm a Melkite Catholic priest. I currently am assigned to the uh, the Melkite as uh, Saint Joseph's Melkite Parish in 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 uh, Fairfield, which is a a suburb, an inner city suburb of Melbourne, um, which is, you know, a city in Australia, not Melbourne, Florida, but Melbourne, Australia, which is <laughs> um, a major city, a major tourist destination. Um, and, and I think we we also received a bit of a bad rap uh, during the, the years of COVID um, uh, being, having been one of the most locked down cities in the world as well. So that's the negative side of it, but we, we won't focus on that. Um, I'm, um, uh, I was ordained to the, to the priesthood in the Melkite uh, Catholic Church, uh, on the 20th of November, 2022. And uh, I've been, uh, and, and I'm incarnated into the Melkite Greek Catholic Eparchy of Australia, New Zealand and Oceania. So, um, I'm married to Agnieszka. Uh, we've been married for about eight years now and, uh, we have a little, uh, we have a little three-year-old named Stefan, who t- we actually fenced, turns three uh, next week. So now in terms of the upbringing, um, I grew up in Malaysia. And um, 
so so you know I, I didn't grow up in Australia and I certainly did not grow up in an Eastern church I grew up um, Roman Catholic or I grew up Latin uh, my mother was uh, uh, my mother is of Chinese uh, descent so specifically Cantonese and my father is a um, uh, Eurasian Portuguese Creole so Malaysia once upon a time a uh, specific part of Malaysia was was uh, was a Portuguese colony and um, the Portuguese in the 1500s brought Christianity specifically Catholicism to to Southeast Asia so we are you could say byproducts of uh, the the missionary uh, initiatives of Saint Francis Xavier who is the you know as you know the apostle to the east um so a uh, catholic upbringing i wouldn't say we were overly practicing uh we went to church when we could um i was baptized and my parents uh taught me my prayers um uh, certainly learned yeah and, and i went for the sacraments and all of that but uh, uh it was no you could say um we were not actively practicing Catholics. In fact, the only reason we went to church was because we had Sunday school. But apart from that, we didn't really go to mass and that sort of thing. So it was, um, yeah. You know, but but I really did enjoy that, that vibe and, and the the atmosphere of being in church, you know, the just, just being around so many people. And so um, that was... Uh, that was my experience growing up as a Catholic. I moved to another city, uh, a developing town in Malaysia, about 40 kilometers from where I, where I lived, uh, where I initially lived. And um, the, the, the church scene there was a little bit smaller. It was a you know, slightly poorer parish. And um, uh, on the one hand, that was where I was motivated to get more involved in the church and to start going for, for mass. But at the one hand, it was also the place where I, I kind of, you know, um, almost lost my faith for a little bit. And uh, I started venturing out and exploring other diff other different Christian groups. Um, I started exploring different Christian groups, uh, started getting more involved in those. And uh, I didn't think that what I had in the Catholic Church was was sufficient enough for me as a whole and uh it wasn't enough uh, it it certainly wasn't um wasn't as attractive to me hmm. i think you know uh that was my impression as a catholic and then um i kind of rediscovered my faith in my later teenage years and in my young adult years i think by then i had a, i was a little bit more formed or at least uh, i had been exposed to a little bit more and um uh, I kind of saw why people were, you know, why people became Catholic. I read the literature. I understood, but somehow the experience, the 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 lived experience of being a Catholic where I was, just wasn't really gelling with me. Something was missing, and uh, then I started exploring again. Started exploring Orthodoxy um before i decided that no nah, this is also not for me and um home is really where where the catholic church is so yeah that 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 is my upbringing in a nutshell you could say <laughs> that's a fairly long story but uh i don't know if i answered your question but yeah that 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 would be my my journey as a whole yeah so what were some of the things that drew you back into the catholic church um i guess the things that really drew me back to the catholic church was the consistency of teaching 
Um, the liturgy, the sacraments, the sacraments. And I also thought that um, now the, the, the thing that I should point out is that when I was sort of uh, umming and eyeing about the Catholic Church in my younger years, it was not because what the Catholic Church did, taught was not true. I didn't have the the the, the hangups that, that you know, um, you know, it's not found in the Bible, and that's all. You know, in fact, I um, I was convinced that everything that was found in the Catholic Church was was in the Bible. But I guess um, it, the issue that I had was that I was not being fed, or at least I didn't feel like I was being fed. You know, there wasn't enough of a uh, uh, there wasn't enough of an evangelical paradigm, or a uh, Within within the Catholic Church, where I was growing up, you know, I didn't feel like, uh, you know, people were sacramentalized, yes, people were ritualized, yes, but but I didn't quite see um, the the evangelist the evangelized side of it as much. So that was probably why I I sort of, you know, yeah, the sacraments, the liturgy are great, but it's the um, it's the evangelism or the you know the, the focus on the word that that sort of um that sort of drew me away a little bit and and also i guess the other thing as well is that while the catholic church had the sacraments um the catholic church has the sacraments and the liturgy the reason why i also pulled away a little bit was because like if this is the true church and if this if, if this is what um if this is what the church teaches is true, that you know, the, the the mass and the sacraments, why are we, uh, why are we very shoddy about the way we do things? Hmm. That was, you know, so I was looking at it from a very different angle, not not saying that, oh, this is not found in the Bible, this is heretical, and the church is so and so. You know, I, I didn't have any of that, but I was just seeing that. Um, look, if this is the true church, there has to be a better way of approaching this. Hmm. So um, what drew me back to the Catholic Church? Well, um, first of all, there's no place like home. Um, there's no place like home. And and also um, you could say, um, yeah, I was convinced that, look, this is, this, is, um, this is where I'm meant to be. I think eventually, you know, um, God put it, you know, I would say God put it in my heart to say that, that, you know, there's no place like home. This is where you're meant to be, and you know, and and if you're looking for those things that you feel are missing in the church, then maybe, you know, um, then then maybe I need to be the answer to that question, or at least I need to find that response to that question rather than walking away from it. So was that kind of the the impetus for you thinking about the priesthood? Um, well, I think it was an impetus for me to serve God. That was for sure to become a servant. Um, and and I think for for a good part of my life, I I, I had been serving in the church, or you know, I was working in the, uh, I was helping out, or at least freelancing for the Catholic newspaper, for the for the for the Catholic magazine. Uh, I was involved in youth events. I was you know involved in initiatives to to um, to to kickstart you know um, Catholic chaplaincy or at least a camp Catholic campus ministry on 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 private colleges. So uh, in in Malaysia, a lot of us do study in private colleges, uh, uh, private colleges or private universities, and and um, 
you know, what we wanted to do was to sort of um, establish a Catholic presence and to start something there. But um, I guess um, that, that so the, all of those experiences helped me or led me uh, to to discern a vocation of service. Um, the priesthood did cross my mind a little bit, but I wasn't really. Um, I would have to say I have to admit that I wasn't very um, brave enough to 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 make the move to seminary. You know, I mean, growing up in a in a fairly Asian home, uh, you know, the the prospect of displeasing my parents or bringing dishonor and shame to my mother, especially, was 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 um, was was daunting. I mean, um, you know, to to even change majors in university was 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 not something that she could live with. You know, so um, so yeah, yeah, I I uh, I had some problems there, so um, so I I kept going, but but you know, I I definitely had this desire to continue serving God, and I think I got my, you could say I got my big break, um, in uh, after university, um, sorry, while I was in university, I got my big break, and um, uh, that was when I met the Melkite. Uh, bishop for the first time in Australia. Uh, it was this, it, this was in two thousand and nine. I had been somewhat involved in the Melkite Parish. Now, the, I mean, the story about how I went to the how I ended up in the Melkite Parish is a different story in itself, and um, it's very funny because uh, I went to this little church in in Perth um, when I was in uni, two thousand and eight to two thousand and eleven. Um, we went. I went to this church, which was walking distance from where I stayed, and. Um, the church was uh, was Arabic speaking. Never saw you know someone. Yeah, you know, well, they've had non-Arabic speaking guests from time to time, you know, here and there to to come and witness the liturgy. But you know, who's this guy? Is coming every week, you know, every week. And so eventually, I got involved in the church. I was reading the epistle. I learned how to serve the altar. You know, I never never altar served in my life. I mean, I picked it up in the Malpai Church. So the bishop heard about me, and um, I told him my story, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and he basically invited me to consider vocation to the priesthood, and basically said, "We need priests." And you know, um, I want the church to be more firmly rooted in Australia. I want to be able to to normalize uh, the celebration of the divine liturgy in English, uh, and to do more pastoral work in English. And so, you know, I feel like you'll be, you know, uh, I'm ready to accept you, mm. you know, and I'll take care of everything. Don't worry. Unfortunately, um, uh, the bishop uh, was was reassigned, or at least uh, um, you know reassigned to Lebanon to a metropolitan see in Lebanon, which is you know in a, in in a way a promotion. We had a new bishop, so things just started all over again. And and um, with the new bishop, obviously, uh, you know he had consideration about my 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 my, my history and my past, and uh, and eventually he thought, okay, well. Uh, he, with the advice of the parish priest, I was made a subdeacon. So in, in our Malchite church, we still have minor orders. So I was, uh, I was tonsured or released, um, blessed to become a subdeacon yeah, on Pentecost Sunday in 2012. And that sort of started my trajectory, started my path to ministry and orders. You, you could say, yeah. And, and and obviously from there, that was also where I initiated the process of of uh, doing theological studies and and um, you know getting more involved to to uh, prepare or to 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 receive formation to become you know uh, to become a deacon and subsequently a priest.
So, you know, so you came from a Roman Catholic background, you're, you're exploring your Catholic faith, you you say, this is my home. Um, and what was it like going to a Melkite Catholic church? Did you even realize it was a Catholic church um, when you when you first went went into the doors? Well, that's funny. Um, actually, I, I did have some 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 you know, awareness of who the Melkites were to begin with, because um, 2005, uh, you know, uh, as you know, 2005, uh, Pope John Paul, Pope Saint John Paul II, uh, you know, fell asleep in the Lord, uh, and and you know he had this major funeral, which was celebrated by, uh, you know, uh, the late Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Well, at that time he was still Cardinal Ratzinger, and uh, you know, at the end of the funeral, there were there were these Eastern bishops uh, who came, and uh, you know, they they were praying at the coffin. Uh, sensing the altar, and they were saying some sensing the coffin, and they were singing, uh, chanting prayers in Greek and in in Arabic. Um, so I was, I thought about this and I said, who are these guys? These, you know, who are these guys? Uh, very interesting. Uh, and they're all vested, fully vested. And I thought, are they Orthodox? No, they can't be Orthodox because uh, there was a little uh, screenshot, or at least there was a little um, a frame that, that that went to that pointed towards Patriarch Bartholomew. So well, he's the Orthodox patriarch. Well, he he should be the one doing this, uh, you know. But but no way, he's he's Orthodox and he's sitting in the in the pews with all the other people, not vested. Whereas uh, we, we have these Eastern bishops, you know, in all their fancy, well, in their very beautiful Eastern vestments um, at the altar. So if they're vested, they must be concelebrated, and if they uh, they must have concelebrated, and if they're concelebrating, they must be in communion. So these are not Orthodox; these are Catholics. Because uh, you know that, that was very a very fundamental um, uh, statement that I would would have learned in my catechism. I mean, you can only receive communion in a Catholic church if you're a Catholic or you're in communion. You know, so um, definitely thought, okay, now these guys are Catholic, so who are the Melkites? So I started typing Eastern Catholic churches, and then I, you know that, that was there, and that was that. Um, I attended my first Byzantine liturgy prior to moving to Australia in two thousand and eight. To, um, and, and subsequently attending the Melkite Church, uh, I attended a Byzantine liturgy organized by a, uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Edward Young. Uh, Edward Young is a Singaporean uh, who lives in Singapore, but he has um, he has had an, a, an extensive experience, life and experience in the Eastern Catholic Churches. Uh, having studied in London, he was. He was somewhat involved in the Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral in London. And so when he came back to Singapore, um, you know, all the context that he had established in Europe started coming to Singapore because Singapore is like this, this, this very cool landing spot. If you're, if you're traveling from between Europe to Australia, you know, everybody just stops in Singapore and Singapore is a, is a global financial hub or a regional financial hub anyways. So uh, um, everybody knows Singapore, it's a major city, right? So um he organized for for this priest from Ireland. Uh, well, he uh, he's a Russian Catholic priest by the name of uh, Father Serge Kelleher, who who also passed away in two thousand eleven. Um, he he brought Father Serge Kelleher, who was a Russian Catholic priest, incarnated into the Ukrainian eparchy, living in Ireland. Uh, he and he he stopped over in Singapore on his way to Australia to celebrate divine liturgy, and he got this. He he got all of us somehow. We were all connected, and and uh, you know he invited me to to attend this divine liturgy. So I played my last gig. So I was a part time musician in my my life as a student. 
uh, I played my gig and I, I took the bus from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore to attend Divine Liturgy. And I stayed in Singapore for three days uh, and I just sat with this priest. And it was for the first time I actually had, you know, close contact with a priest. Uh, I went to confession for the first time in so many years. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, you know, I was just... Uh, I was just in this space where, you know, uh, wow, you know, it, it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, this this moment of ecstasy and you just, uh, you don't know what hit you. That was my experience with the Divine Liturgy and, and the and the services for the past, uh, uh, it, it, for it, at my first experience. I mean, it was all strange to me, but it wasn't all that strange because it was all done in English. Booklets were prepared. And so I, I didn't miss out on anything. I, I, I captured a lot. Now, it was, where I felt I was lost was probably when I when I went to the Melka Church for the first time. But after a month of attending regularly, I mean, I kind of got the the gist of it, and found out that they also that there were also books. So <laughs> I was able to sort of uh, capture on and follow that as well. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question though. Yeah, no, that, that's that's helpful. Um, what are some of the the major differences between if someone said, "Hey, what's a what is Melkite Catholic? What is that? Where does it come from? What are okay. some of the differences between the Melkite rite and the Latin rite?" Okay, so um, I think for one, um, I think it's it's good to start with the term Melkite. Okay. Um, well, sorry, what is the Melkite Greek Catholic Church and where does the term Melkite come from? I think I'll structure it according there, uh, in that way. And then and from there, um, you know, probably help me reiterate, uh, uh, remind me of your follow-up questions from there. Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so the, the, the Melkite Greek Catholic Church is is really the, um, uh, is, is, is a Byzantine rite church, is an Eastern Christian church in full communion with Rome and, um, uh, liturgically, it uses the Byzantine rite. So um, it is also can be known by some people as the Greek Catholic Church um, because, you know, any any church that's, uh, any Catholic church that uses the Byzantine rite are usually called Greek Catholic. So the Ruthenians, the Ukrainians, Romanians, um, the Hungarians and the Slovaks, by some stretch, they're usually referred to as Greek Catholics in their in their homeland. So the Melkites are also known as Greek Catholics, uh, but but when you translate the, translate that into Arabic, they're known as Rum Catholic. So Rum Catholic, because for them Rome, the center of the Roman Empire was Constantinople, not not old Rome, but new Rome. So that for them was their point of reference. Um, so when they come to the West, they call themselves Roman Catholics because, you know, for lack of a better term, because the word Greek in Arabic is a different term altogether. So uniting, you know, which is, uh, you know, which is uh, to refer to the Hellenic, you know, uh, tradition, but they're, they're specific Greek as in Byzantine, not not Hellenic, you know, Hellenic. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're a Byzantine church. We're, we're called the Greek Catholic Church of, um, and, and our, uh, our sister church is the Greek Orthodox Church of Antioch also known as the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Um, uh, depending on who you speak to, we are the only church, um, the only Byzantine Rite church um, that, that has a patriarch. So our patriarch is, is uh, titled the Patriarch of Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and all the East. Okay, and um, 
while we are a, while our church has its roots in the Middle East in the Levant, um, we are a transnational church. So we we and so we are. I guess you could say we are we are one of those Byzantine churches where our ethos, or at least um, our foundations, are not not specific to one particular nation. Not that it's a bad thing to be you know of one particular nation, but. Uh, um, and I'll, as I get to the point about the term Melkite, and um, you, you'll understand why. And, and so our vocation is largely to bridge the gap between the East and the West. But I think, you know, um, we've also somewhat played a role by by uh, bridging the gap between the nations in the Middle East where they are Melkite Catholics. That's one. But And also, I think now with the diaspora, they're also bridging uh, bridging the gap between Melkites of different cultures who come together and c congregate in that one church. And um, it's usually the common de denominator is, uh, you know, a love of Jesus, uh, a love for scripture and a love for Middle Eastern food. So uh, <laughs> in that order. <laughs> I, I mean, if you ask Father Mitch Pakwa, I mean, like, you know, that, that's, that's why he maintains, you know, I, I think apparently <laughs> that's what he says. He, he, he maintains being by ritual because of <laughs> Yeah, you know, he loves the marinette, right? He loves Jesus, but you know, there's also the good Middle Eastern food. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a winning combo. Um, so now, in terms of the word Melkite, what does the word Melkite mean? Now, um, to start with, you've got the um, the Chalcedonian. You know, in in the history of the council the councils of the Church, you have the Council of Chalcedon, which firmly defined and definitively defined um, the two natures of 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 our Lord. You know. Jesus Christ is both God, fully God and fully man, you know, and negating uh, or compromising neither. Yeah. So neither natures are negated or compromised. Um, so for the people that, um, that acknowledged or accepted this, okay, um, because um, the, the op opposing party saw this as an initiative or uh, an intervening uh, initiate uh, effort uh, by the Byzantine emperor. Okay, um, those who who followed the, those who followed the Byzantine emperor were called Melkites. So the, the word Melkite comes from the Syriac word Melek, which means king. Right. So so um, and that's what so in, in the early days when the term Melkite was used, it was actually a perjurative term. It was a it was like a swear word, you know. Mm. Like you say, "Ah, oh, you're a Melkite." It's, it was a label, a derogatory label, uh, for people who were followers of the king. But you know, today, in today's day and age, I think by extension, anyone who um, anyone who is Catholic or Orthodox is is by extension a Melkite because you know you're followers of the king, and you know, and, and the Catholic Church uh, definitively, you know, proclaimed Christ the King in 1925. You know. Uh, Equas Primus, which established the Feast of Christ the King in the Latin Church, obviously. Um, you know, we refer to Christ as, as the King. And so, you know, by extension, I think all Catholics and Orthodox who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior do either see him as is King. And um, so I think from this is a historical statement. Uh, you know, what we've talked about it is largely a historical event, but I think, from a theological perspective, why is it important that that um, that Christ was both God and man? Is is largely because you know if he wasn't if he wasn't 
uh, both God and uh, sorry, if he wasn't both God and man, then then I think uh, you know, in a nutshell, our chances of of uh, our, our chances as human beings of getting to heaven and being in union with God would be close to zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, sure. and and you know, so I think I think that you know to safeguard the. The, the truth of the inter- incarnation and, and subsequently, uh, you know, our salvation as well. You know, that, that's why the Chalcedonian definition was, was, was established. So uh, this is, this is my, my, my take on it, obviously. So um, now in terms of the differences between the Latin rite and the Melkite rite, um, well, I think uh, at face value, you know, the, the Roman Liturgy is well, you know, of the Roman Rite. Um, it has its foundations in the Latin language, um, whereas in the in the uh, the, the Byzantine Rite, uh, the Melkite Byzantine, the, at least as, as it's used in the Melkite uh, in the in the Melkite Church, um, is its foundational languages are Arabic and Greek. Well, it was, Greek is used to some degree, although I've seen. Melkite liturgies celebrated, you know, in, in a good portion of Greek as well, according to the the Melkite liturgical books. Um, we are Byzantine right, and so I think I think a lot of the differences would would be more along the lines of the uh, the differences between Latin and Byzantine practices. Um, I think for a, um, for a good portion of uh, well, actually, you know, all of our liturgies, uh, especially in the way that the church is is set up. Uh, our our liturgies are celebrated at Oriented. Uh, so our normal, yeah, we're, we're talking, you know, and, and our liturgies have uh, are celebrated in the vernacular. Yeah, uh, I know that there's a movement within the the, the Latin Church to um, there is a movement within within the Latin Church to restore the Latin in the language of in the liturgy, um, which I think is is great. Uh, but at the same time, I know that's also some, there. There are also some, there. There is also opposition to it. Um, so yeah, we we still use. Um, well, I, I'm not a big fan of the jumping around in languages because of the pastoral need. We do celebrate liturgies in both languages, uh, uh, not not just separately, but also when we celebrate the Arabic liturgy, we also see that there that there are people who are not Arabic speaking come to the church and they still come for the Arabic liturgy. Uh, we try to cater for them by we by by you know uh, reading the gospel maybe twice, okay. uh, saying some of the prayers in English as well. Yeah. So like so a little bit of Greek, some Arabic, as well as sometimes you just English. English. That's yeah. right. That's right. And and if there are different language groups, well, we'll just try to cater for them. You know, <laughs> we're very flexible in that way. And uh, I think um, my experience of being a uh, in my experience as well, uh, some of the nice, some of the very distinct traditions at the divine liturgy is um, is is when when the deacon or the priest proclaims the gospel in the in the Melkite Church, mother and children, mother and you know, there's always a mother and child that always comes up uh, to to where the deacon or the priest is proclaiming the gospel, and uh, they stand there to hear the gospel. Hmm. You know, it's like you know. Um, it, yeah, I, I don't. I, I've never really understood the, the the significance of that, but I found that to be a really, really beautiful practice. Sure. Uh, and these days, you know, especially if you're celebrating a divine liturgy and you 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 have many mothers and children present, you know, they just flock up when the gospel is about to be proclaimed, and and it's just such this wonderful feeling. I mean, it brings you back, or at least it gives you the picture of what Jesus 
and you know what Jesus saw when he was you know when he when he walked the earth and he was doing his his uh, his ministry on earth yeah mother and children just gathering and flocking around him to hear the to hear his teachings it's it's uh it's wonderful um the other thing as well is um we still maintain this the three sacraments of initiation uh so we do them on the same day we haven't really broken the practice the the uh we haven't really broken the separated sacraments of initiation. Um, and and uh, what, what I really do like is that on the 40th day after the child is born, we bring the child to the church for the first time, introduce the child to the community. Uh, the priest says uh, a prayer of blessing over the mother and over the child and brings the child into the church for the first time. And he has this little procession around the altar. Oh, that's cool. Three times. Uh, and then the, 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 as the priest is processing around the altar, as he finishes, he says um, the, the, he, he, he recites the Canticle of Simeon. You know, mm. oh Lord, now that you know, now that my eyes have seen the light, you may let your servant depart in peace. You know, that that that, that little practice, yeah. So, um, and also I think um, the fact that uh, you know, marriage in the Byzantine Church. Um, uh, our, our, our marriage liturgy in itself is a is a sacramental liturgy, so we don't usually have the Eucharist at the at the wedding, and we usually encourage couples to receive the Eucharist on the, the Sunday following the liturgy. So then, you know, that way, that way they 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 have the package, if you will, you know, marriage and the Eucharist. And um, while in the Latin tradition, um. Marriage is con is uh, the celebrants of the sacrament of matrimony are um, a husband and wife, so the man and the wife are the celebrants of the sacrament, and the, the priest is just a witness. In the Latin, in in the in the Byzantine rite, in our rite, um, the priest is the, the priest is also needed for the the invocation or the epiclesis. Okay. So, so it can't just be a deacon. It has to be the priest has yeah. to be present. Always, yes, always the priest because um, deacons, uh, by 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 definition and by virtue of their ordination prayer, they are they're not ordained for the service of the for for the uh, for the celebration or the administration of the sacraments. Sorry, celebration of the sacraments. They can administer holy communion. Uh, they assist at baptisms. They can baptize in extremis. But because of the uh, the nature of the sacraments of initiation, where you have baptism, chrismation, uh, at, at the very least, these two must be administered together in the Eastern tradition. Um, these two are administered together. Uh, the priest usually is the one to do them, to, to, to be the, the, the primary celebrant or the, the key celebrant. It has to be the celebrant, the priest. Uh, likewise with marriage as well, because of that priestly invocation, the priestly blessing, he also celebrates that. Okay. Yeah. And and I know this is you know there's a lot of discussion at least in the Western Church or the the Latin Rite about the way we do baptism and confirmation or chrismation. Um, I I know that there are some that are under the impression that we should do it like the Eastern Catholics where where you do baptism and then you do chrismation right there. Uh, and then and then you also and then my understanding is you also do uh communion as well first communion is that correct as part of that so can you explain maybe the the theology behind doing all three at the same time well um that's a good question um now the reason why we do all three at the same time is largely um you know in, in the early days of the church uh you know in the age in the age of persecution we've we've 
um, in the age of persecution, I think everybody goes through a maturity of the soul, or at least everybody becomes very mature as Christians because they know that their lives are in danger and they believe in Jesus Christ and they believe in his gospel and they would do anything for his sake. And, and that also meant uh, receiving the sacraments. These days, um, obviously, the practice in, in the uh, in the church is, is to sort of separate the sacraments or even, you know, and even change the order. You know, now I'm not saying that that's right or wrong or anything because uh, you know it depends on the pastoral situation, pastoral need. Because in the um, in the Latin Church, um, you have the bishop as the the ordinary minister of confirmation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 uh, you know, as a as a as an Eastern Catholic priest, um, we have that ordinary faculty to chrismate. That, that that that's that's you know that's for us. Um, so. It has been a practice of the church, you know, to 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 chrismate, uh, to baptize and chrismate, largely because there is a unity between baptism and confirmation. Mm-hmm. You know, baptism is that that initiation into the body, and and subsequently, you know, confirmation is like a a strengthening of that faith that's been given to you, strengthening of that 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 that, that spirit that has just been given to you, given to you. You know, that's why we say the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. You, you are sealed. It basically, you know, in baptism is like signed, sealed, delivered. You know, uh, for the mission of for, for the mission of Christ. Um, yeah. So we're, we're signed, sealed, and delivered for the mission of Christ. Uh, that that is that that is the um, that is that is possibly why at least we've maintained that tradition. Now, why we why didn't we move on with that? You know, adapting to the to the, the practice where the Latin Church, like, like the Latin Church, where um, the first of all they've um, first of all you know they separated baptism from confirmation. I mean, it's it's due to pastoral need. You know, we've got situations where um, the bishop can only come to to a, a specific uh, point, a place in his diocese once a year, or he could even go to, uh, uh, or he can only visit. You know, really, you know. Not not even once a year. Sometimes you know. Sometimes dioceses are just so remote. Uh, you know, the, the the space of a diocese that that can be uh, big, but you know, I think I think bishops do generally genuinely make an effort to be at their parishes once a year. You know, um, <clears throat> so it largely comes from that understanding that the bishop is the ordinary minister of conf- uh, of, of confirmation. Now, as to why Holy Communion is received at a later age. Um, as you know, um, there is this thing about the age of discretion. But St. <clears throat> Thomas Aquinas was very careful to say that this age of discretion or this age of reason does not necessarily mean a numerical age. It does not mean a physical maturity, but it actually means a maturity of the soul. So um, from my experience, having seen children, having, seen, uh, <clears throat> having communed little infants at, at our parish, I think maturity of the soul of the child depends on the on, on the on, on how uh, how much you know uh, it depends really on the effort of the parents in in, in uh, really sharing that faith with the children. Um, yeah, and and just 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 surrounding them with that 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 wholesomeness that the that uh, the wholesomeness and the and the truth that the church offers. So that that <clears throat> that experience of Sunday mass prayers, uh, you know, even using that that little colorful Saint Joseph's picture books, Catholic picture books, to 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 uh, convey to them 
you know, the gospel, the teachings of the church in very simple ways. Um, that helps build, develop or cultivate the maturity of the soul. So, uh, um, and and these children know when when they're receiving something special. When they come to mass, when they come to divine liturgy on Sunday, when they receive the body and blood, when I address them by name, you know, they, <clears throat> they there is this this. Um, you can see that there's this openness to receiving the body and blood of, of our Lord, but also at the same time, there's also this awareness that they know that they're receiving something special. They're receiving Jesus, hmm. you know, uh, and and somehow I think from the perspective of faith, they, um, from the perspective of faith, they just, yeah, they just have a better awareness and understanding that sometimes us mature adults don't. Hmm. And plus, the Lord says, uh, you know, suffer the little children to, you know, permit the little children to come to me. So um, and when we do that, yeah, you know, we, we see that effect play out, you know. Yeah, <clears throat> it's it, it's actually a very tough question, to be honest. Um, but, yeah, I, I um, this, this, is a, this is what I see as a priest. This is what I've seen as a deacon, and this is what I see as a priest. And I see this in my own family with my son, who's who's three. But he knows he's receiving Jesus. You know, I think it's also largely the fact that he's got a big appetite. But you know, it's uh, you know, but he loves he loves coming up for communion. He loves being in church. He loves being surrounded by these icons and and everything because you know, color is so fascinating. Um, children are very sensory people. You know, and and you know, he's at that age where sensory play comes into the picture as part of his development. So. Uh, there's the smell, there's the bells, there's the icons, there's 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 all this this dynamic action that's happening at the at the liturgy, at the altar, and then with the uh, with the, the the altar service processing, they see, and then you know they 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 learn how to bow, at least learn how to sign themselves on the you know sign, make the sign of the cross, or um, uh, yeah, so they see, they hear, they taste, they smell. And they, they, you know, they touch, you know, it's, it's, it's a, the worship of the five senses. So that, 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 that there is that experience there. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a little bit of, um, that, that's how I would approach that question. Unless of course, you know, uh, you have a follow-up question there. <laughs> no, that's, that's super <laughs> helpful. If someone wanted to, is there a process for someone, um, coming into the Melkite Catholic Church, like if they came from, they, they were from the Latin rite like yourself and wanted to become Melkite, is there a process for that? It depends really on the uh, on the diocese in question, really, you know, um, yeah, because different dioceses are, it, 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 sometimes, um, different dioceses have different procedures and ways of operating, but all of them do work according to canon law with regards to this. Um, generally, Okay, but but what I'll give you is a general uh, outline of what happens. So generally, what happens is um, you you've been involved in an Eastern Catholic parish for years as a Latin Catholic, and and, and some some Eastern Catholic parishes uh, or diocese eparchies um, make make provision that, that you need to be involved in their parish for, for a number of years. Some would say a year, some would say two, some would even say five. So uh, you'd have to be, um, you'd have to be a, uh, 
a, a, a commuting, active, practicing parishioner of, in, in a Melkite, in an Eastern Catholic parish, you know, not, not just Melkite, but just in you know, overall Eastern Catholic for, for a couple of years. I mean, the longer the better, I guess, you know, um, for stability's sake. And once you've made your intention known to your parish priest, um, and, and you know, he will guide you through the process. But what that involves usually is informing the EPARC or the bishop of what's happened and uh, of 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 your intention. And then, um, if he, if he if he feels that the parish priest's attestation is is good enough, etc., he will. say he will issue a letter to say to you okay you know i accept you as a member of the ruthenian catholic church or the melkite catholic church now to finalize this transfer you need to um you need to speak to the melkite bishop to, uh, sorry do you need to speak to your local latin bishop okay and, and indicate your reasons for transfer and and uh you know petition for for him to to transfer you to your to the um to the St. Eastern Catholic Church, to the Malachite Catholic Church. And once you've done that, once you receive the letter uh, from, from the local Latin bishop, that that becomes, um, that, that's pretty much final. The, the consent of the Holy See is implied Okay. in that sense. Yeah, so now this usually, this is the normal scenario um, that occurs in a place where there is an Eastern Catholic bishop or there is an, uh, a bishop of the church that you're attending. So if you're uh, attending a Melkite church, if there is a Melkite bishop in place, if you have a Melkite bishop in place and you have the Latin bishop with you, then, then everything goes fairly straightforward. But there are places or instances where you want to go to a Melkite church or belong to a particular Melkite church, sorry, a particular Eastern church, and you don't have a, a, an ordinary for that Eastern church. Like in the case of uh, some, some people that I know, um, uh, it, who transferred, who made the transfer in the 70s uh, from the Latin church to, say, the, to the Melkite church. Um, the, 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 current, the, the usual norms, the usual norms are um, you, would, you would talk to the local ordinary and you will have to get consent from the Holy See. So that means your petition goes to Rome to, to transfer your prescription. Yeah. But when you have bishops in place, it's very easy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is it usually handled very amicably? Like if someone says and, you know, gives a decent reason, do you ever Yeah. foresee a Latin bishop being like, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not permitting this? I've I've heard of situations like that. I've heard of situations like that, but I can't say that I've actually heard of such situations here in Australia. Um, yeah, because I, I think generally... You know the the Australian bishops in uh, sorry the the Catholic Church in Australia has been very accommodating. Well, I wouldn't say accommodating because that that's just like uh, they're here. You know, um, they've been very accepting. That's that's the word, accepting and very welcoming of the Eastern Catholic Churches here. And uh, and and um, you know the Eastern Catholic Churches have just added you know so much of color and life into the Catholic Church in Australia. It's not you know yeah it's it's unbelievable. Um, You know, and everybody pays credit to the East. Everyone in Australia, in the Australian Church, pays credit to the Eastern Catholic Churches in Australia for the, uh, for the efforts. You know, uh, making the the Catholic Church in Australia this rich and vibrant place to be. Um, 
So uh, from the Australian perspective, not really, but but uh, I can see that that yeah, in some places I've I've heard of obscure situations where uh, the petition for transfer has been rejected because the reasons were not sound enough. Now, obviously, you can't approach a, a Roman Catholic bishop and say, "I want to be, um, I, I want to join the XXX Eastern Catholic Church because they allow married priests." That that's not going to fly, you know. <laughs> That's not going to fly with a lot of people, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and and you know, if I was a Latin bishop looking at that, I say, well, you know, you're leaving for the wrong reasons. I can't really approve that, you know. So right. you have to really find the right reasons to do so. So it does involve discernment and prayer as well. What is the? I, I don't know if you can speak to this or if you can speak broadly to this, but you know, I know I, I would I'd love to know kind of your the thoughts of Eastern Catholics. Um, in in the communion of of with roman catholics you know like i i know that there's a lot of roman catholics that have no idea that the eastern catholic churches exist i know you know as a protestant i didn't know anything about eastern catholics i was always like you mean eastern orthodox right um and so i wonder i wonder like is it is it are you always trying to like hey we're here we're here guys you know or, or how is that i think there's a little bit of that um especially since i became a deacon um, I started attending. Uh, so, so for 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 background, um, I studied uh, theology with a lot of the local Roman Catholic seminarians. So, how it works in Australia is that you've got uh, houses of formation. So, seminaries become places where they live and and receive their uh, non academic formation, but the actual academic formation takes place in a college or a university setting. All right. So, in Australia. Uh, studies, uh, theological studies or ecclesiastical studies would take place in a college. So the, and this college is accredited by the government and uh, nationally accredited, sorry. And and, there's, and you basically, you know, get a degree out of it, a civil degree, which you can, uh, which you, you, you which could sort of, uh, which gives you the skills and the tools to, to earn a job, to, to get a job if you do not, do not end up being in ministry, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, I studied with 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 Roman Catholic seminarians from uh, from from across the region. So, not just my state of Victoria, but also uh, Tasmania, South Australia, um, and and you could even say guys from religious orders as well. So, all of them were preparing for some sort of ministry in their life, diaconate. Ministry uh, priesthood. Uh, so I think I spent a lot of time. Uh, I, I guess my enrollment in their classes, because uh, basically, uh, you know, as I was studying as well, I had to use uh, the guideline that they used to choose uh, your your subjects of study for for ecclesiastical studies, which is what we call the ratio fundamentalis. So I had to. I basically chose my units off the ratio fundamentalis. So I was attending classes with them. So in a way, uh, and this was not intentional. I mean, this is this is actually like serious business. Like if you want to, if you're actually seriously considering becoming a Catholic priest, uh, anything that you study needs to be worked off the ratio fundamentalis. So uh, by virtue of doing that. I think I was already sort of saying, hey, guys, we're here, we exist. And then occasionally I would come in dressed in my my, my cassock, I guess, you know, uh, especially after I became a deacon, my cassock or in my clericals. 
uh, yeah, basically just said, hey, guys, I'm here. Or, you know, I didn't even have to say that per se, but but just by my very presence, by very witness within the college was just like, I'm here. I'm an Eastern Catholic, you know, uh, and and um, news of my ordination to the diaconate was, was put out in the college newsletter. Uh, news of my priesthood was was actually published in the college news in the college newsletter as well with the list of ordinations. Um, so it was it was very handy for that to happen. So in a way, uh, you know, um, I did a little bit a little bit of the legwork, but but then after the college just tuned on and said, "Yeah, Colin's a priest." You know, uh, they know, and they just say, "Okay, so we're, we're putting his name in there." You know? <laughs> so, um, and and, um, and ordinations. When I started going for 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 my my friends' ordinations, I was vested differently as well. So that raised questions. Say, what are you? You know, uh, why are you not dressed like these other guys? Yeah, you must be a deacon because you you gave the kiss of peace and you hugged those other deacons, but you're seated with all the other clergy and you're and celebrating or helping out or whatever. You know, and then um, as a priest now, uh, there's a there, there was a photo of me circulating with the Archbishop of Melbourne, can celebrating with the Archbishop of Melbourne. So again, there is that there is that uh, you know. I'm here, guys. You know, <laughs> there is that vibe. There is that 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 sentiment there. So, uh, I guess you know now with with all the uh, with my appearance at some of these major events and and to the 2023. I mean, this this uh, the start of 2023, which was two months after I was ordained to the priesthood. We've had some fairly uh, significant events in the life of the Australian Church. First of all, we had uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, you know, uh, Pope Benedict's death. Uh, at just towards the end of the year of 2022, I think it was. Yep. And then you had Cardinal Pell's death as well. And so in Australia, all of these were marked by memorial masses and, you know, requiem masses uh, for, for the repose of their souls. And uh, you know, as someone who, who, uh, who, who enjoyed reading Benedict's works um, and, and, and also as someone who had a lot of respect for Cardinal Pell, you know, uh, and as someone, uh, I admit, you know, uh, I believe that he did not do any of those things that he's been accused of. Um, it was an opportunity. It was, I guess you could say it was an opportunity for a lot of young priests to, to congregate and gather and pay tribute to these two great men. Because, um, yeah, every uh, all of us priests who, so you could say priests who have uh, who graduated or at least who have been ordained in the last uh, ten years, I'd say. We've all read some since. We've all read some Benedict, not the whole corpus, but you know, some of it. Uh, and, and we've all been, and we've all been, uh, we've all been inspired by Cardinal Pell, and uh, you know his his uh, you know his 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 Iron Man approach to the faith. You could say. Mm. <laughs> well, if someone were to ask you, hey, why aren't you Eastern Orthodox? And you you'd mentioned earlier the your sister church is the East uh, the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about that relationship, but also maybe why you you're Eastern Catholic and not Eastern Orthodox. Sure. Okay. So um, this is not an easy easy question. As I mentioned, I considered becoming Orthodox years ago, uh, but but obviously this was before I found the uh, the Eastern Catholic churches, and I and certainly before I found my vocation in the Melkite Catholic Church. Um, I would say uh, 
why did I not become Eastern Orthodox? Well, I guess, you know, uh, my personal history in the Catholic Church, you know, uh, and my circumstances in life eventually did not allow me to to leave and become Orthodox. And my wife is, is a Polish Catholic. I mean, that, that will not fly if I chose to become Orthodox. Um, first of all, and, and obviously, you know, my, my extended family, like my grandmother, uh, my my grandmother, my my extended family, those who are practicing Christians still are Catholics. So, you know, I, I, I still wanted to be able to relate to them because, I mean, I am a... I would say, you know, like I, I'm not perfect. I'm not, you know, but but I'm a I'm a practicing Christian. I believe in in, in our Lord, and I, uh, and I wanted to belong, and and so there is that family tie, you know, that which which led me to to remain Catholic, um, you know. Uh, so, and the other thing as well is that. Being or becoming Orthodox, you know, as much as I was tempted to do it, you never really know what's on the other side as well. You know, you're, you're, you you think that the grass is green on the other side, but it's it's not quite. I mean, you know, Orthodoxy has its own, you know, the Orthodox Church has has its own issues, pastoral and social, etc. And sometimes a lot of these problems, uh, they just they they don't just go away very easily, or at least. You know, on the surface, they look like problems. They're they're actually not problems. You know, I you know there are many examples of that which I can give. But, you know, it's probably going to be hard for me to process, but um, there are problems, but they just don't seem like problems. And a lot of these problems are not really problems in the Catholic Church. We have something to deal. You know, there are ways to deal with them, and I feel like in my personal experience. Um, In the Catholic Church as well is that uh, well I, I guess you know this is the one thing that 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 really uh, that really um, sort of helped me remain Catholic as well prudence and wisdom so you know in the in the Catholic tradition or at least you know um, as as taught by Aquinas these are these are virtues right prudence especially prudence yeah. Prudence in in you know on the one hand obviously prudence in moral judgment but but prudence in pastoral situations prudence in a lot of things I mean this was the key thing because I've met a lot of people across the board who who uh, who rattle off what the church teaches who rattle off you know canons without thinking about the situation without even stopping to to breathe consider the aspects of the situation and i think more so my my desire or at least my 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 decision to remain a catholic was firmly validated as i prepared to become a confessor as i prepared to hear confessions i was sitting down and going we were going through the basic um, the basics of moral theology all over again so we had we had all done our uh, so these were a bunch of guys in us uh, 11 of us in this class we had all done our moral theology we had all done pastoral care and everything and we were just going through all of these things again and again like like uh you know what makes a mortal sin what makes um what makes a mortal sin how do you deal with uh issues of of uh uh how do you deal with matters of formal and material heresy you know, i mean these are very specifically latin uh 
technical theology. This is very specific Latin, you know, and they they find their basis in the in the Western tradition. But it really helped me to see that you know it takes a lot for 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 the Catholic Church to consider something a sin. You know, like like because of the whole distinction of what what's mortal and venial sin and what makes a mortal sin in itself says to me that. Yeah, you know what? A lot of these people, yeah, okay, well, we a lot of us are sinners, but how many of us actually have full consent and full matter when we become <laughs> full consent and full knowledge when we commit these sins? So it takes a lot. You know, and, and, and as I learned how to become a confessor as well, I realized how how merciful we're meant to become. I mean, we're supposed to be just, but but at the same time, you know, um we're taught to be gentle pastoral uh listeners. As well, and so I think this, from, and together with the prudence as well, these were the things that that sort of helped me remain Catholic. And obviously, to borrow the words of uh, Bishop Robert Barron in his in his uh, in his book uh, Catholicism, you know, I think there's something about the incarnation that we take really seriously. I mean, we we overplay the incarnation, so it's not just something that we see in our rituals, in our theology, but also in in the art, in the in the in the uh, the works of mercy that we do, you know that that for me is is a very big thing. Um, now, having said this, though, I mean I do believe that the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church they share the same faith. They they, they share the same. We profess the same creed. And you say you can find, you know, you can find elements of the Catholic faith in the Orthodox Church. You profess the same creed. We have the same fundamental dogmas, sacraments. There's apostolic succession, succession but. Obviously, you know what I've just mentioned there. I I think those are the key things that are missing. That's that's something they haven't. Uh, that's something that's 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 really missing. And um, and in saying this though, uh, I cannot convincingly say to someone, "Don't become Orthodox." I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're all adults with our own rational. Uh, we can make our own decisions for ourselves. But um, why? Be Eastern Catholic. Well, you know, uh, why become Eastern Catholic? You know, you you get the treasures of the East. You have one foot in the other. You 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 enjoy the treasures of the East, and you also learn how to appreciate in an ironic manner the treasures of the West. You don't see the two as 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 competing with each other, but complementing one another. Hmm. So you you start as Eastern Catholics, we start to find. The things that that people say ah, uh, the, the find the things in the east and the west that oppose each other, and we start we're there to find the terminology, the language, to to try and say, no, hold it. They're actually both saying the same thing. It's just that the language used is 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 just the terminology and the techno and the the tool set, the toolkit that's being used to expound on these things are just different. So a very good example is. Uh, a very good uh, a good website or at least a good resource that's helped me uh help relate being eastern catholic to 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 roman catholics and also to orthodox is um, east2west.org by father deacon uh, anthony dragani so father anthony dragani is uh, is a deacon in the ukrainian catholic church and he maintains this website east2west.org east number 2west.org and uh he really looks at the whole, the big picture. So, uh, you know, because of that, you know, dogmas like the Immaculate Conception make sense. Dogmas like uh, the Assumption of Mary makes sense. Uh, 
purgatory makes sense because a lot of these things at face value don't quite make sense to the orthodox but they do to us as eastern catholics why different semantics different toolkit different uh, terminology and we understand both sides we understand both sides very well that's 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 uh that's possibly why i would say be eastern catholic so you really get a sense of both sides not just liturgically but everything yeah actually i'm gonna have uh I'm going to be interviewing Father uh, Dragoni in a, in a couple of weeks. So oh, cool. uh, he'll be hearing as well. So yes, thank you for that segment. I'll, I'll certainly put the link in the show notes as well. Um, so you mentioned that the Melkites, uh, like one of your missions is to be uh, a bridge between the East and the West. Um, and so uh, how do you, how do you guys see your role working with the Eastern Orthodox churches? Well, I think overall we we've had a very good um, we've had a, a, certainly at least in the last sixty years, uh, to my knowledge, at least in the last sixty years, we've had a better working experience with the with the with the Orthodox Church. In fact, as the uh, at the as, as the Second Vatican Council came to came to reality, I mean, as, as it was about to happen, uh, when wind of it got out to 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 the rest of the world that you know Pope John the twenty third is convening this council. Um, Patriarch Athenagoras, the uh, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch at that time, I remember if it was him, probably is. Uh, he actually conveyed to Patriarch Maximus IV, um, who was the Patriarch at that time, uh, and, and you know he was leading the Melkite delegation to the Second Vatican Council. He said, so pa- the, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch said to Patriarch Maximus, "Say, look, be our voice at the council." Mm-hmm. Please be our voice at the council, and and in fact, um, it is this this uh, this this camaraderie between the Greek Orthodox Church, of, um, Constantinople, and and obviously with the Melkite Greek Catholic Church has been fairly positive in the sense that um, first of all, uh, you know this 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 book, uh, this old book that was published or at least prepared by Archbishop Joseph Raya, the late Archbishop Joseph Raya, a Melkite bishop. Um, Byzantine Daily Worship. I don't know if you've seen that book. Mm-hmm. Um, Byzantine Daily Worship has uh, a letter of commendation, not just from the Melkite Patriarch, but also from the Greek Orthodox Patriarch. Mm. Yeah, so there was already this sort of um, this 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 relationship going on. Now, at present moment, at present moment, um, from what I understand. Uh, well, at least at least in our perspective, we 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 have our guys. So I, me included, some of us have actually done some studies at uh, the Greek Orthodox Institute here in Australia, the Greek Orthodox uh, Theological College. So we went to where their seminarians go study. Uh, we've studied together with them. We've uh, and in fact, from my understanding as well, uh, there is this interdependency of Melkites and the Orthodox to uh, the, the Melkites and the Greek Orthodox, at least. Um, they like to share publications, or at least they like to share liturgical texts. So when you ask them, oh, do you guys have this in your bookshop? I say, oh, we're waiting for the Melkites to publish one so that we can use theirs. You know, yeah. that, that's that that sort of interdependency that's, that's going on there. And uh, I think from an from a grassroots perspective, at my ordination, uh, my very good friend, who was then a deacon, uh, an Orthodox deacon, 
he was one of the cantos, or at least he was he was he was one of the cantos at my at my uh, in the choir uh, at my ordination. So uh, and and like and similarly uh, for Agape Vespers on Easter Sunday, they invited me to be one of the proclaimers of the gospel. So uh, in, in the Orthodox tradition, um, I don't know if you know this, but th there is this practice on Easter Sunday where they. They uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, they proclaim the gospel, the appointed gospel of the day in in different languages. Hmm. So not just in the old ancient languages, but also in the in the in modern languages. So we had someone who, in addition to English and Greek and Arabic and Church Slavonic, somebody read the gospel in Chinese and in, in Mandarin, in 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 uh, in Turkish, etc. And and uh, I was appointed to read to proclaim the gospel in Italian. So I went as a layperson. I was a deacon, but but you know I I I was given the layperson parts, obviously. But still, you know, it was an it was an honor. It was an honor to for the Greek Orthodox bishop, or at least the Greek Orthodox Metropolitan of Australia, to to consider me to say, you know, invite your friend, come, you know, uh, I'll give him the blessing, come, you know, let's just uh, let's all just be one, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that that's that that that. Um, that's that spirit that we have now, you know. Uh, I know that in some places the, the relationships between Catholics and Orthodox are not all that great, but definitely in the Middle East, but within the Antiochian Orthodox Church and the Melkite Greek Catholic Church, the relationships are tight and strong. In fact, uh, you, from what I've heard as well, uh, they share churches with each other, you know. And, uh, yeah, we share churches with each other. So there will be one church in a village, First, the Melkites use it for the divine liturgy, and then the Greeks use the Orthodox use it for the divine liturgy. After that, so it's a it's a very uh, it's a very interesting situation. So, you know, I know there's been a ton of effort. Um, I guess pr probably since Vatican II, maybe even even before that, to try and bridge that gap between the East and the West, and to I you know I know Pope Francis has made uh, a number of efforts to extend. A goodwill towards the orthodox and and talks of you know maybe one day there'll be there'll be communion again um do you what what's your take on it as someone a little closer to to it i think uh, look I, I think um you know the efforts towards realizing the the vision of the second vatican council the the the, the melkite fathers at the second vatican council uh where i would say we're a long way off but but um you know, I think a lot of good effort has been made, you know, to to sort of uh, to bridge the gap. So on the one hand, um, uh, on the one hand, it, yes, Pope Francis is making a very good effort to to uh, to to establish you know stronger relationships with the Orthodox hierarchs. You know, you know, every time you read Vatican news, he's some some you know there's always one Orthodox delegation or a head of church coming to visit Pope Francis. You know, there's this goodwill, there's this gesture of goodwill, there's this goodwill a gesture of hospitality as well. Um, but I think from from the Eastern Catholic perspective, I think. It's really only now that some things are starting to happen. So first of all, there is this, uh, from, from a Catholic perspective, I'll, I'll say uh, in 2014, you know, Pope, Pope Francis lifted uh, this, this motu proprio, cum data fuerit. So cum data fuerit was established in, I think, 1929 uh, in response to the, uh, <laughs> to the nuisance 
that was married clergy from 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 the Carpathian region uh, migrated to the United States, you know, and uh, and because because Roman Catholic bishops had very little understanding of of, of who the these Eastern Catholics were, um, uh, married priests or widowers widowed priests with children were not allowed to migrate to the United States. And so those who did, and those uh, those who did, were suspended or at least barred from from uh, from ministering as priests. And so they left and mass to become Orthodox, mm. which became the you know which which became the foundations of of what we know as the, the Orthodox Church of America today. Now, now that um, we we so. Obviously, if you were an Eastern Catholic living in in the United States and, and anywhere in the diaspora for 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 most of a year uh, for for most of the twentieth century, you would be expected to be celibate. And if you were ordained as a married man, you would either have to go back to the old country to be ordained and then loaned out to your to the place that you actually live or to the diocese that you actually live in to 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 exercise your ministry, and. Um, it, it just became very difficult. And I think it came to a point where uh, in Canada, apparently, there were three married priests who ordained to be auxiliary priests, you know, just to be assistant priests, just to help out. They were already deacons established in their ministry. They were sent to Ukraine to be ordained. And then when they came back to Canada, they found out they were suspended. Hmm. Yeah. So it was uh, because, um, yeah, so these were some of the problems. Now, it was obviously um, in Australia, that ban was lifted in 1998 when the Australian Catholic Bishops Conference voted that they had no opposition to the Ukrainians and the Melkites ordaining married men to the priesthood. Uh, so they put that motion forth to the Catholic Bishops Conference and the Catholic Bishops Conference said, yep, yeah, no opposition, so go ahead. So, uh, in fact, they 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 you know, the... Uh, Roman Catholic bishops, I feel, are, are sometimes the beneficiary of this because you know sometimes some dioceses have a shortage of priests, and so uh, these these Eastern Catholic priests who are married can get biritual faculties to serve to also serve the Roman Catholic diocese, you know, because there is a need. So mm -hmm. hospitals, schools, prisons, whatever have you. Um, so when when Pope Francis lifted the ban in two thousand fourteen, that, that that was that I think was a was a, a magical moment, I guess, you know. Because so, now an Eastern bishop is free to ordain someone to the priesthood uh, without interference from the nuncio or having to, yeah, you know, uh, there, there's no need to make life difficult anymore, right? right. Uh, and he's also harmonized uh, the codes of canon law, the Eastern and the Western codes of canon law, uh, with regards to the administration of the sacraments of marriage and uh I'm sorry, sacraments of marriage and initiation. So very clearly in the Latin code now it says that if you if you're uh, if 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 um the, the, the child that is going to be baptized or the party that's going to be married, if one of them is Eastern Eastern Catholic, then the deacon cannot do that anymore. So he's hmm. he's already safeguarding the Eastern Catholics in the Latin Code of Canon Law. Hmm. Yeah, he sees he's definitively setting that in stone now. You know what was once presumed or implied is now set in stone and completed. It's final. So he's doing a lot more of that as well from the Catholic perspective. And and obviously, you know, with the whole synod on synodality, I don't know how many people what people think of that. 
Uh, I um, uh, obviously we we pray for the synod and synodality as the uh, as his, as the Holy Father is called for. Uh, I was involved in some of it as well. Um, what I've noticed as well in the list of participants coming out for the synod and synodality uh, is that all the heads of the Eastern churches are involved in that. Uh, and in fact, I think he's 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 given some of the key driving roles of this of, of this uh, gathering to some of the Eastern Catholic bishops and patriarchs. So Eastern Catholic priests are definitely pariti on this thing as well. Um, and, and even in the, in Australia, in our regional <clears throat> uh, our regional deliberations as well, uh, as we were responding to the Instrumentum Laboris or the working document, sorry. Um, uh, we Eastern Catholic churches in Australia were given uh, a specific say. We were not just absorbed by the Australian Catholic Bishops' Conference. Even though we're part of the Bishops' Conference, we were given a separate voice. We were allowed to, uh, at least we were encouraged and even uh, asked to provide our own feedback, our own experience as Eastern Catholic churches within the Australian, or the, uh, within the Australian milieu to, to, uh, yeah, to, to, to respond to the instrument of laboris, which we, you know, which I think we did a very good job. Hmm. That's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know a lot of that history. So thank you for, for filling me in on that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Do you know that that's fascinating? Do you have time for one more question? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Hit me. Um, so, you know, you mentioned marriage and in the Eastern Catholic, uh, churches that it's common for priests to be married. And, you know, I was saying that's a, such a strange thing, you know, coming from a Protestant world, we all just assumed if you're a Catholic priest, you are not married, um, yeah. but you are married and you have a child and I think you have a, a job on top of being a priest. So tell me yes. what your week typically looks like and how you juggle it all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh. Yes, I, I'm married with a with a with a three year married with a three year old. My wife uh, works two days a week, and she's also you know uh, she's also someone who 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 is interested in ministry as well. But she's going through the professional path of becoming a counselor. So that that's uh, you know counseling and psychotherapy. That's also a very important part of uh, uh, you know it's an important tool for ministry. So. What my uh, what my week looks like is I work Mondays to Fridays nine to five. I work as an IT consultant, so my background is in software engineering. So I work as a uh, I work with code, I work with tools like uh, you know, and I work with the cloud as well. <laughs> so uh, if if any of that language means anything to you, you know, then 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 you're safe. But if not, don't worry. I mean, I just look at the screen all day and and type away. So we, we change keyboards every three months. So, uh, <laughs> um, so that, that, that's my day job. Um, after I, so my, what, what my, my day typically looks like is on Mondays to Thursdays, my son goes to daycare. And, uh, so my wife works two days a week and the other two days are spent on her studies and, and for her to just catch up on house chores and stuff. Uh, I work from home most of the time. So, uh, uh, you know, it's up to to dad being the driver, the the pickup guy, you know, uh, or the errands guy, pretty much. So what I do is when I wake up uh, in the morning, I I, uh, I say a, you know I say a short office. I don't I don't really have uh, I, I don't have the luxury of time to sell it to 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 do the office in 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 total. So what I do is I just say a small portion and then I start my day. Um, 
I make sure that my son gets up. I get his breakfast. Uh, I let I let the wife sleep in for a little bit. You know, if 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 that's okay. Uh, if if uh, if I don't need her, I let her sleep in. I I get I make sure that he gets his breakfast. Um, uh, he's ready for daycare. I drop him off. I come back home. Uh, any errands that need to be done, I do them before I start my work, uh, my job. Uh, before I start work. Uh, and I have a little home office at home, which is the garage. So I I I head to the garage with my coffee in hand and everything, and I start. You know, I just type away, or I'll be stuck in meetings or something like that. Um, then you have your lunch and then I try to finish by about five or, or just before five so that I can go to go and pick uh, my son up for a daycare and then dinner or well we, we play for a little bit we go to a playground if the weather's great there's a playground playground uh, scooter whatever have you um, and then it's time for dinner so usually my wife will be the one preparing dinner yeah and then after dinner it's time to read with a uh, play with him a little bit more toys and then um we read a few books in in preparation for bed i get him ready for bed sorry get him ready for bed we read books and then i, I put him down to sleep i put him down to sleep um uh, in the process i take a little nap myself as well <laughs> i wake up uh, after after he's down i wake up and i i start doing whatever i have to do so that that's my quiet time at least and then there's also some time to that I make time to catch up with my wife on, on things, you know, just to talk and just to uh, just to catch up and just see how 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 she went with her day. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I, I'm usually in bed by midnight, and I'm up again at about six six thirty. Yeah, it's very uh, go go go. Yeah. So sure. yeah. So when we have holidays, it's, it's also very. Uh, it's proper as well. So we really go on long holidays when we try to. Uh, so that's that's on weekdays. That's on weekdays. On on uh, on on during Lent, uh Lenten weekdays, I have to uh, I usually try to organize for my mom to come over to help me with the pickups because I have to be at church for, for Lenten services. So I'll I'll Lenten so Lent is pretty involved for, for Eastern Catholics, as you may be aware. Um, so we have we have services almost every day during Lent uh, at, in the evenings. So uh, Lent and Holy Week uh, are the toughest periods, and this year was my first year as a priest during Holy Week, and yeah, <laughs> on, huh? it, it was very uh, it was a very very intense week. Um, things things sort of slow down during Easter, but yeah, we were uh, on Sundays. Uh, I'm usually up the first. I'm the first person to be up. I try to get everybody, rally everybody to be ready, uh, so that we can be at, uh, so we can be at the church, thirty minutes to forty five minutes before liturgy starts, so that you know that gives me enough time to prepare. Yeah, yeah. Are you having to do um, celebrate the different sacraments like marriage or uh, kid, you know re reconciliation is that like happening on Saturdays is happening midweek how does that how does that work well it happens mostly on Sundays Sundays okay. upon request upon request um some people may want to see me after uh after after divine liturgy some people want to see me before I accommodate uh as and where I am able to um yeah I, I've never never I've not had this experience yet. 
at least in the Melkite Church, of having in mass confessions. You know, like uh, people coming in, like you know, at a penitential service, and uh, mm-hmm. so it's not that I, I guess we, we haven't really organized that. Uh, we, we leave it to the people's discretion to to come to to confession. Um, I have done that uh, at at a Latin mass in in Singapore. I had to hear confessions for two hours straight. It was not not. It's really nothing compared to what some of my priest friends have gone through. But uh, I, I yeah, I do that. Um, but yeah, in terms of marriages and other things, um, I can celebrate and assist at marriages because usually that's done by the parish priest, okay. and sometimes the parish priest wants you know uh, wants to make it a bigger thing or yeah. So so other priests like myself would come and. Can celebrate at the wedding, uh, and certainly at the baptism as well. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, Father Father Colin, I won't take any more of your time. I really appreciate sure. all of your insight and um, and uh, and you know, for me, you know, coming from a, I came from a, a Baptist background, and I'll, I'll just share that uh, what I was thinking about converting to Catholicism when I when I was like, oh, maybe I'll be Eastern Orthodox, you know, and I. It was it was really the Eastern Catholic churches that I think really convinced me that I wanted to become Catholic because I was I said, you know, where 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 is their unity and where do we see unity most happening? And I really felt like, oh wow, you know, the 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 Latin Catholic Church and the Eastern Catholic churches are working together in that unity. And so um thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for being a bridge for that and and a witness right. to the unity. Thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was an honor, and I hope I answered your questions directly as much as possible. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much, Justin. The Eastern Catholic Churches is one of my favorite topics to discuss in all of Catholicism. It's not because I'm part of an Eastern Catholic Church. I'm very much active in a Roman Catholic Church. But it interests me because it speaks to the ongoing effort of the Catholic Church to grow in unity. As I mentioned in the interview with Father Colin, I will soon be interviewing Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, a priest in the Ukrainian Catholic Church, and has the website From East to West. My hope is to eventually interview priests from all the different particular churches of the Catholic Church, because the more we are aware of them and their distinctives, the more we will understand that the Catholic Church can be both incredibly diverse, but also operate in beautiful unity. Let me just take a minute to thank Father Colin for joining me on Why Catholic and the work he is doing to serve the Catholic community in Melbourne and to be a bridge between the East and the West. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it. And patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.